Welcome back, pod people, to a new episode of Cinema de More. I am your host, Justin Morgan. I'm here with Chuck and Lexi. And we're finishing up our Hayao Miyazaki film series of three films with Princess Mononoke. So what year did this one come out? Is this one 97? Yeah. This came out in 1997, which was a huge hit in Japan. I think what I read was it was their highest box office film since E.T. Yeah. And then it was quickly knocked out by Titanic. But (laughs) for like whatever that would be, like 15 years or something like that, it finally knocked out E.T. as the number one spot. And I think this is kind of what puts Miyazaki on the list. Like this is maybe his most profound movie at the time. And this is why his next film, Spirited Away, got so much tension right out of the gate. That one even knocked out Titanic. This movie definitely made anime mainstream because it came out in the theaters here and it was the film that everybody's like, oh, did you see that? And then that drew further interest into the Ghibli realm of film and stuff. And that's why we started getting them all released in like the 2000s was because they dropped this guy. And then after this, they started just pumping them out because we wanted them and we were interested. Not that this was the first release here. I mean, we had My Neighbor Totoro and Kiki's Delivery Service, but they were like on VHS and you had to figure it out on your own. It wasn't like they were advertised. They were still anime. Like they were still part of like the underground. So this movie, it was released in Japan in summer of 1997 and we didn't get it till October of 1999. Yeah. So it's like two and a half years after it came out that we got our dubbed version with Billy Crudup. I I didn't listen to the dubbed version. Billy Bob Thornton. Don't forget about that. And many tribes. <laughs> it was a super limited release. Like, I think it was like one weekend or like a week only or something like that when they did release it in theaters here. So it was like, come check it out. And for like me and my friends who are super into anime, this was our first chance at getting to see an anime in a movie theater in America. We were like, holy shit. Like, we never thought we'd have this opportunity. So we rushed at it. It was made for 2.1 billion yen, which is 23 and a half million dollars. It's not bad. That's expensive for a Japanese film, though. It definitely feels closest to the old 60s samurai films. I know that it's kind of a fantastical movie. It has these elements of this whimsical fantasy kind of element to it. But then it has real life geography. They're definitely in Japan. They even talk about China. They'll be like, this is, um, you have to go deep west into the woods to this ancient area. China also exists. China, you know, we're not shitty like them. But uh, I don't like, wow, that's kind of like when, what were you watching? One of those superheroes movies where you know they have like gotham and metropolis but then shazam was like ah philly yeah (laughs) (laughs) just takes place in philly yeah and then i'm like what so some cities still exist in these interpretations so this is obviously some sort of ancient japan that has samurais and different types of spirits these types of spirits and stuff are still worshipped till today I think it's a lot of fun watching this, that element of nature. They don't necessarily over-explain what they are. It'll just be like, yeah, that's the deer god, and those and those are the, the ape spirits. It's ancient spirits from the woods. It goes back to Japanese lore of like the different spirits that come from the different things, like the earth and the trees and that mother nature kind of... You know we're back into it. We're back into the environmentalism themes that Hayao Miyazaki loves so much. I don't see it. He got he got he got a little tired during Porco Rosso, and he's like, "I'm going hardcore back into nature." Yeah. I mean, there's Iron Town, so it's pretty much about the industrial age. I'm pretty sure. 
Yeah. I, I think it's interesting is how similar this film was to Nausicaa in like the basics of its storytelling and stuff. It's all there, except instead of it being a princess who's the lead, we have like a prince who's the lead of a village. The female is a secondary character who's more directly associated with the wolves. Instead of it focusing on a female character like he usually does, it does in fact focus on a male character, which is a little different for him. He plays that male character the same way he plays all of his females. They're like that super kind, here to help, genuinely a good person. It's an interesting turn. Ashitaki is the main character in this, and he is probably the purest character. He sees the good in all sides of everything, and I think it puts an interesting perspective on on this film because things or people or groups that seem like monsters or enemies in the beginning you see the good in them at some point in the story right so you do have these like heavy shades of grays as to who these characters are at any given point you have to ask yourself constantly who the good person is in this story and who the bad person is and it's kind of like everybody's right but everybody's wrong it's really complicated to like follow that Clearly the humans are robbing the land and they're killing off the spirits and they're creating problems with the spirits. And they, of course, see combat of the spirits as pretty much the only option because they just want the resources so they can function. But as humans towards other humans, they're like super, super, super good to people during a time when people are treated so poorly, like these poor women who are like sold into prostitution and she like saves them and like all this kind of shit. But then they're being trained to shoot the spirits of the world. So it's like, who's your fucking enemy in this movie? And, and how do you deal with any of it? I was not prepared for the level of uh, violence after, after all the other very PG rated films. And then this one just goes right into chopping people's arms and heads off. Oh, yeah. It is probably his most brutal. There's some nice ninja scroll action in this movie. Yeah, like there, there's some good I like what he yeah, when he first like discovers his power and his like mutated arm starts going nuts when he's riding with that just with blows that people's heads off with the bow and arrow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, first bow and arrow is great people. where he just severs the guy's arms into yeah. like a tree. That, that, I thought that stuff was great. Like that was that was a very much like a but he but I feel like he at least I, I don't know, I guess I would say he does it tastefully. He doesn't go like so over the top that you're just like, okay, Miyazaki, calm down. Oh, yeah. Like he like he's still he does it very violent, but he doesn't go full on kill bill, just blood spraying everything. There's no Japanese fountain blood in this film. Yeah. He, do, he doesn't go that far. None of that tradition is brought into this. But I definitely love how over the top the violence is. It's crazy. I mean, when he first sees those people before he shoots the arrow, they're stabbing villagers. Then our hero just disembodies people. I love that first creature. The big <laughs> slug creature that shows up, the first one, the corruption of the, the pig. That one's great. I love that creature. I like that creature design. And you have to ask yourself, how do you fight something that's just like a mass of slugs? How do you deal with something like that? Because I was like, hey, in a way, you're going to fight that kind of thing. Nah, He's go. got a bow and arrow. Yeah, and very quickly when he meets up with his like mentor up in that tower and he tells him, don't touch it or you'll be cursed. Yeah. And that battle where it's pretty much just him and the creature and it's got typical video game aesthetics where the weakness is the eyeballs. Surprisingly, he does a great job of taking on this creature, but he still does get touched, which means he's got cursed. Yeah. He's got kind of a cool curse. Yeah, it will kill him, but like <laughs> Chuck said, he kind of has an evil dead arm a few times. Yeah. Where the arms like ready to kill people and he's like whoa 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 we're not doing that right now i think him being corrupted with the curse is interesting and in how it kind of gives him superpowers i was under the impression and maybe i'm wrong maybe this is just my own interpretation but that the curse because of who he is and like the fact that he's so good 
that instead of corrupting him, it's allowed he's he's being allowed to sort of harness its power because it didn't completely corrupt him the way everybody anticipated. And so he's able to work with it rather than just like completely allow it to take him over. But I could com- be completely slower. wrong on that. It is slower yeah. for him for sure. Yeah, that's what he says happens with the the boar that dies in the beginning because they said like he he was too afraid and that's why he ran away and so the the curse took him faster and made him go crazier faster like i guess eventually that might happen to to ashitaka but it's like yeah it's just very slowly taking over him it that won't happen immediately because he's able to fight enough of it well and you know going back to the environmentalism themes like these gods that have lived on this planet for years and years and nothing ever seems to hurt them and they're they're supposedly immortal but as soon as we take human weapons made by like machinery and all this and then fire the bullet into them they are now corrupted by the bullet because i guess like it's unnatural and so that unnatural right so that but that unnatural material seems to corrupt them and kill them even though they're you know supposedly immortal gods and i thought that was so weird i was like why would a gun hurt them but i guess it goes back to environmentalism themes where we sort of created this corrupt, corrupted material and, and the bullet is not natural. And so because of how unnatural the process is of creating these things that it create, it corrupts an unnatural being who's connected to the flow, ebb and flow of earth. Yeah. And I, I love the deer God too. Oh yeah. Uh, I love the deer God. <laughs> also, creepy with his human face i was gonna say the face on the thing is so fucking creepy though like it, it's always disturbing to look at that thing i, I and it's always smiling that it brings it brings life or death and there's no telling like what kind of help you're gonna get like if it's gonna kill you or revive you and i i, I love that and i noticed too I think that this is also another thing that Aronofsky has stolen from with the plants, like coming out of the guns and shit like that from the deer god. It makes me think of the fountain where the sap starts making all the plants like burst out of Hugh Jackman in that movie. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Okay. So I can kind of see that too. And like the influence of this movie alone, like if you've played Breath of the Wild it's it's there's so many things from this movie that end up in that video game beyond just the animation like there are there's little creatures guys the kadamas are in there yeah they're there oh my Uh, god they're my favorite you can ride the elk uh ganon that you fight is the giant boar you know with shit flying off of it there's all the you know like the 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 night was he the night stalker or night walker he's the night stalker what was he? Yeah, he's a night slack. He's a Richard, Richard Ramirez was Richard in Ramirez the latest, just burst uh, out of the woods. <laughs> was in the latest Zelda game. Uh, yeah. yeah, these pretty much like those dragons that fly around in that game. So, Are you talking about like the newest, newest one? The, yeah, the, like okay. it's it, it, and the, the whole idea of like the uh, environment overtaking technology again, like overtaking these villages. Uh, it, it's it's clearly a huge influence from this film in itself even the lighting like i i mean i don't know i think that's another beautiful thing about this movie that's extremely underrated just the lighting like the way that when they're running yeah. under the trees and the how the light hits them looks so natural 
you don't usually see that in in any sort. They never take the time in any other sort of animation to. Oh no, to the animation is gorgeous in this, and I'm not a hundred percent on this. I think this one's all. Um, hand drawn like i think this one's all social i could be completely wrong there could be some there was one shot where he i think it's before he takes off that guy's arms that feels weird but it could still be it could still be hand drawn i don't it's know. really fluid like it's got some some of the most beautiful animation it definitely you can see the the upgrade in style from like 82 but at the same time like there's not a huge amount of change in his artistic choices either like he still has that old school like 60s kind of character design even though the characters are a bit leaner in this one they'd have less of that thickness he still does it right through the faces and like the way he does a lot of like the bigger characters or on the other side of it like the spirits and stuff like that they all have that old school quality about them so i, I like i like that um he maintains that traditional while making it work for like an older audience instead of it just making it like kiddish because this movie is like pretty adult all things considered like it's 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 good enough for kids like a 13 year old for sure like even younger i would go but like not terribly young i mean it's got some moments besides the dismemberment we have people getting shot uh there's a girl sucking uh poison essentially out of her wolf her massive wolf buddy. The wolves well, some are of, stalking and eating things. And Some of the creature designs are, are like, I think the, um, I find the leech creature at the start incredibly horrifying. I don't like stuff that's like that. Like that's like body horror to me. Like it's like the blob essentially like flying out of the woods after you kind of thing. And it's like, and it has like an extra animation too. So yeah. it takes us a while before, like you don't even know it's a boar until that sunlight hits it that first time. Or Yeah. When they when they separate from it a little bit and you get a visit, like see that they're actually like on something and they're using the body of it to like create yeah, their very own body. Esque. Yeah, I I think I've always had trouble as a kid with creature designs like that. Like that stuff's always kind of traumatized me. So I would be like really horrified by that as a kid. Also, like you're not allowed to touch it or you get cursed. But right, those worm things are like constantly falling off of it. Yeah, and it's like, like Night of the Creeps. On, falling on, it doesn't seem to like affect them that much though. If they get touched by that, they have to get touched by something that's still connected to the the main beast in it. Yeah, so like you have to kill the boar itself, not the creatures themselves on it, because they're not relevant. Yeah, and and when they kill that first boar, and they're like apologizing that they had to do it, and he basically like like he's like says, fuck, fuck you guys you. yeah fuck <laughs> you guys and then he just decays in front of them like that's pretty badass yeah that was an interesting scene too because it's like you don't know you don't expect like what's going to come from that or where that's going to go and then you find out like he had his own pack of boars and all that kind of stuff too and those boars have like teamed up with like the super boar to try to like fucking just go to war they're a proud group of boars they know when they're walking into a trap, but that's not going <laughs> to stop them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I like I, I do like the the supernatural elements, too. Like when uh main character has the girl, San, and he's trying to leave that fortress. And they're like, it takes 10 men to to open that door. And he's just like his arm like hulks out and like helps him like push the door up and, yeah. uh, you know, to get under. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's definitely an interesting character. And even in like that sequence where he could fight with people, he just doesn't. Like he's always like backing off and in- or d- intentionally not doing engaging. distractions. Like he rips that part of the roof off. Yeah, and he throws it into the torch to kind kind of have like a tiny explosion to like have him back off. Yeah, everything's yeah, got the hots for sand. And there's a interesting theme of identity too that keeps getting brought up because she's been adopted by the wolves. So she sees herself as a wolf, but you know, the boars and stuff, they still see her as human. You think she was the inspiration for Heifer from uh, Rocco's Modern Life? Adopted by the wolves, doesn't realize. <laughs> yeah. That can't figure out when they're like, uh, I think you're adopted. Whoa, what are you talking about? <laughs> I don't think you're You're a wolf, Heifer. What do you mean I'm not a wolf? When they have to bring an elk home for dinner. I think she she knows she's not. uh, Yeah. I I think she knows that she is human by blood, but by nature, she's wolf. She's a feral child raised by wolves, but she's also raised by gods. So there is that aspect of it, too, where like she's just as much a protector of the forest in a lot of ways. And as much as she loves the main character, she can't possibly exist in that world. Like she's so too. Yeah, because she starts as the protector of the woods and he's like starts as the protector of civilization because the whole the whole opening of this is super tense with that, you know, infected boar trying to attack this town. And he's the first line of defense. And I mean, obviously, he's fucking kind of well, he does. He succeeds with some some damage, uh, but he ultimately succeeds in what he's trying to do and save his village. He, but he, and he takes that sacrifice for himself. But holy shit, like that first 10 minutes, it starts, it's pretty tense right out the gate. Like it has a, a, a like a nice moment of showing you some nature scenes and then this creature emerges and just him like looking at it through the woods and you can see the worms like flying kind of from a distance Uh, it gets very intense quickly like where it's seeping through the wall and then bursting through it yeah there's a lot of like i feel like this is like the real start of his like art where he makes like a lot of that gooey liquidy shit that's constantly moving because he starts to like really carry that out like there's a lot of like carry over to spirited away in the animation style with this and what have you you can see like where a lot of it carries but like i don't know i think this one's like one of his best films i think it's a really solid accumulation of what he's learned and the best parts of his hand-drawn art style more so than like utilizing new techniques and things like that and i think this is like his strongest story it, it really holds like this was one of those movies it's like it's two hours long and I didn't yeah, feel Yeah, and it. it felt shorter than Porcaroso. Yeah. Which, yeah, that was like an hour and a half, and I was kind <laughs> of like, I really wish this would end. Like, I really want it to, like, kind of gear down, because it really didn't go anywhere. And this one, you definitely knew it was going to go somewhere, but you just had no idea, like, how hard it's going to go or where it's going to oh, go. Oh, yeah, you have his, like, original village, and then you kind of have some outsiders, which is where you meet the bandits. Then you have Samurai. Then you have the workers at Iron Town. Then you have the different divisions that are in nature because they're supposed to work together because they're like all under the deer god, but they're also kind of for themselves a little bit. You know, the boars. Like the ape creatures. Those are. I enjoyed just how like creepy and weird they are when they're like, <laughs> give they're, us all, the they're human. all like black to like, give us the human. We will eat him and then we will learn his secrets. And they're like, quit being so stupid. You can't learn secrets by eating someone. They're like, feed him to us. We will learn. Like they just like, they're so single minded. They're like, just give him to us so we can eat him. 
Yeah, like, yeah, they are funny because it's just like they keep chiming in, like, yeah, yeah, give us the human. We're gonna eat the human. And the wolf's like, I'm gonna eat you guys. <laughs> what what you don't realize, I guess, like as a human in that world, is that like all these spirits have been kind of like not I wouldn't say at war, but there's definitely a pecking order. They don't necessarily like their pecking order. Like the boars clearly feel like they don't have the position to speak to the tree like this the tree god the the deer god so like they feel like there's a lot of people that are like even though he's in charge like they don't want to deal with him or they feel like he's not going to deal with them so they feel like even though they're taking care of their areas that when their areas get affected that they don't have help that they don't have a backing so no spirit feels like they're working with each other all the spirits are all kind of like not at war, but definitely like at odds with each other. Like the apes are like, oh, fuck you, wolf. And the wolf's like, fuck everyone. And everybody kind of is like, fuck the, the deer god. And the deer god is like, I got this, but like, you guys got to trust me. And like, I do there's... like when they first bring up the deer god and Ashitaki's like, thinks it's Moro. Like, you're the deer god? I'm like, I, I don't <laughs> think the deer god is going to be a wolf, but. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> The deer god, though, that reveal is, is so creepy because you see it a few times like silhouette and it looks like gorgeous. And then uh, you see it again and it looks like the dog dog man from um, body, the Body Snatchers remake. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It made me think of the uh, the, the uh, Pokemon from uh, X. That's that deer creature. Yeah. But that thing looked, that thing well, looked yeah, like a Well, yeah, it didn't have deer. a human face. That was like the biggest difference. It didn't have the human face. Yeah, I mean, the face that... is like creepy. And then I, I, I like whenever like the bandits plan is to like take its severed head. And I was like, this is where it does. It gets strangely gory yeah. where it's like there are elements, uh, not there... a foolproof plan there, but there's elements of like Shinto and Buddhism mixed in this a lot like the way that the gods are done. Um, the tree god has like a very Buddhist quality. Dear God. I'm sorry, yeah. But he's a, looks like a tree to me. He's got antlers. Of, yeah. He also makes plants come out of everything. So, But that yeah, guy sick. that guy has kind of got a very, like, almost, um, like, Buddhist god quality and that they give them all, like, man faces with, like, human bodies and stuff like that. So I thought and there was a lot of... you gotta love a good creature. You gotta love the that plot of, hey, there's a god. We're gonna have to kill it. <laughs> That's all... human nature's <laughs> well, like, yeah. we're gonna kill that god. Yeah. And we're gonna do it with with guns, obviously, because that's how we roll. Yeah, I mean, here's all my lepers, and look at the the sick ass firearms that they've made. <laughs> right, those we can't lepers make, make some sick thin. guns. Yeah, when uh that weapon goes through uh the the main woman's uh gun, what's her name? Abashi, something like that. I forget. The 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 leader of Iron Town. Yeah. She still fires her gun, and I was like, I thought it was going to explode in her face or something like that. I mean, it still well, kind of did. I like the first time that she shoots the deer god in the head, and it just kind of goes cross-eyed for a second. And starts, like, sinking into the water a little bit, and then it's just like, oh, I got this. It just, like, rises back out, and it's fine. And I was like, why, did this, why was that okay? But then when it was, like, turning into whatever, and it, the gun was covered in, like... When she, when the god covered the gun in flowers, did the gun gain some sort of magical power? Because the bullet that she fires out of the gun that's all covered in flowers 
explodes in the thing's neck and the whole head just like goes flying off and i was like what the hell he might be vulnerable that? too because it's it's a transformation it's like mid transformation i guess that's fair it's changing into its gelatinous night form yeah. <laughs> we all do we all turn into our gelatinous <laughs> night forms that's right <laughs> yeah that might be it i mean uh, was it a part of its plan maybe because you don't know what it's thinking but i know mean, all the how all the boars were upset that it it healed a human and they're like, why, why would it heal a human? It's supposed to be, you know, and it let others like, uh, Nago, this is Nago, the main boar, the first boar. They're like, you know, it let him be corrupted and die, but it saved this human being. But then there's that kind of folklore tale to it where he's kind of bringing everybody together to like live in harmony, I guess. I guess that's the point. I don't know if it's, what happens 100% at the end of the movie, <laughs> you know? Uh, it's kind of hopeful, but you know where things are headed, that, you know, the environment is never going to be the same. There's a great line, too, when uh, the leader of the Boars, uh, is it like Okoto? He, he's talking with um, Moro, the wolf, and they're like, oh, it's only a matter of time before we kind of lose our spirituality and we're just mindless boars that are hunted for game which he's describing real life boars so it kind of makes you feel like it society has taken out that mythical element from nature so it's it's robbed it of that and you kind of feel that that's the way that since this is obviously taking place 100 years hundreds of years before the present day that's what's to come that's fair I mean, there's a lot of depth to this movie. It layers its story really heavily, and there's a lot going on. But it it's good at um, giving you enough tension, like enough attention to each person, so that it all feels well rounded in the end. Because it all accumulates at the end that every single character that we've been interacting with all come together in the final sequence for the the battle. And it's it's weird too because like in the middle of all of this, these samurai are just a pain in the ass. Like there's just samurai everywhere, like constantly just engaging in war and all this. They kind seem of shit, to be is... the most out of it. Like yeah. they're not even aware of what <laughs> is happening between yeah. you know, uh, but it's also Iron Town. It's also realistic at that time period because like once industry came in, they became obsolete. And so samurai basically just wandered around trying to find something to do. And they either form bands like this or what have you. So they would have been a problem in this time period as well. But not I don't know, like to this extent, like it was just kind of there was just like, like so many, samurai. You, you talk about layers and there are so many layers in this that there's tiny little things that you can pick out and be like, oh, that was kind of great. When uh, Ashitaki befriends that one guy the older guy and uh he gives him the heads up he's like hurry up there's there's bandits here they're gonna try and rob us so they pick up the pace and they miss the bandits and then the next time we end up seeing that guy he's like with the bandits like he's a part of the bandits Mm -hmm. so it's i like i just kind of loved that where it's like oh shit it's just like he's kind of a con man but they got their uh, midsummer bear costumes on. <laughs> I love the bear costumes. Now remember, don't let them see you or you won't get the deer god. All right, all right. You're fine. When they're like crawling across the ground in the pig costumes. The pig Next. costumes are creepy when they yeah. chose to like stay in them as long as they they did. Because they and were like, like, they're people. I'm like, they're moving around like, I don't know. They were giving, they, that the, the skin, the way that it moved, was creepier than the thing from the beginning of the movie. Right. <laughs> just like sacks of skin moving around. I just like, don't trust it. They're not really boars. They're like, he, he can't tell. He can't smell them because he's blind. 
with gross ass eyes. He reminds me of one of my dogs, where it's like somebody <laughs> wipe that guy's eyes. <laughs> it's like crud all over them. I mean, he's old. He's the he's great got... white boar. Yeah, he's got two horns. I think this is probably my. I, I've enjoyed the scores of all of these films, but I think this one might have been my favorite. It's the most epic out of all of them. Yeah, it's like, it the, is. it's like the one that's like the most. Like the other scores sometimes feel like they they just kind of like settle into the background and they're they're good and they're enjoyable on their own. But this was like the most. Like he he truly like was trying to do like you know Star Wars level like themes uh, like John Williams type. Going like real heavy for that epic scope in this one, more so than he did in any of the other films so far. Uh, yeah, I mean everything. Everything feels epic. If it's just him, you know, chilling with the elk by some water, or there's some sort of battle, like it's it's continuously epic, no matter where they're at. Yeah. The scale feels massive. Well, every character feels good. I can't think of any like character in this in particular. That I was like, oh, fuck that one. Like, I got, uh, there's always somebody, in, in, especially in anime, there's always some fucking character that, like, makes a weird voice or, like, some kind of, like, look to her that just, like, I can't deal with that. Like, it's just uh, obnoxious. And this movie's, like, really good at having you go, I really like everybody. I like every character that I'm interacting with. I'm interested to see what they do. You know, you don't really know where it's going, but then you kind of do. But, you, you know, like, you don't know how it's going to get there. Yeah, that's like, um, I just recently watched Cowboy Bebop, and you have that character Ed, who's like a 10, and you get those anime characters that I'm like, what is going on with them? Like, they're always bumped up to like 10 in their animation. Like, they're right. overly animated and stuff. And, and this is really quite subtle. You don't have any, I can't think of one character that's, goofy right like even if they even if they're a little bit odd they're they they're very serious every all of them like even like you said the beer the bear guys coming out of the woods like looked ridiculous but like the, uh, he the, didn't he didn't it didn't make him uncomfortable the goofiest character in this is i can't think of his name but it's the one that's voiced by billy bob thornton the one that wears uh, the weird he sandals in uh, yeah, I, like the, the the leader of the bandits the or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, that's Billy I Jordan. I watched I watched this one subtitled finally. So this yeah. one I could watch subtitled. So I was very happy for that because this one I've actually only ever seen the dub because I saw it in theaters or it was the only way it was ever accessible whenever I watched it. So I was super happy to watch it in the original language finally. And I think it brings it together better for me. I wish I had watched the other ones in their original language because I feel like they would have had better flow, I think. I think one thing with the dubs, and this is something I was thinking about when with this dub in particular, these characters are very young. Like a typical anime characters are very young. Like they don't they don't work with a lot of adults. They don't they, work they with, don't live very long. <laughs> but I mean, like especially with Miyazaki stuff, like they're usually like teenagers or like younger type characters. When they do the dubs, they always bring in like older people <laughs> to do yeah, these dubs. It, it's like a young guy, and it's Billy Crudup, right? Right. And you're like watching, you're just watching this. And I'm like, these sound like kids. When I watch the anime, they sound like kids. Their voices match their bodies. Their voices match their whatever. Oh, we got an eight year old kid. Who could voice this eight year old kid? Uh, what's Christopher Walken doing these days? Right. Like, it's just like you watch the dubs and you're like, these, these characters don't feel right 
in in the way that you're deepening the voices or taking them down to these levels and like they just don't feel traditional and, and like especially even just knowing the japanese language they don't have a lot of like very deep voices anyway in their culture it's just the way that the phonetics of their language works that's like, why the gods they reserved it for the gods right well that's fine too because they're larger and they should be more booming and imposing but regardless of that factor like it was nice to see this in its original form i don't understand dubs i don't really don't understand dubs like when you hear a character when you watch the original version and you go oh you know who would be good for that and that's like some like 30 year old woman and you're like for that 14 year old girl okay all right i understand oh it's weird too because like uh, i remember watching i feel like it was academy awards or something like that and they had everybody that sang for frozen in like all the different like lang- all the different yeah. languages and it's like something <laughs> that you kind of take for granted that like in every country they have their own voice that they're they relate to that character right and yeah and we don't like it's so unless, you're, unless like, you're Groot where in which case you get Vin Diesel for every language <laughs> <laughs> yo soy Groot uh, I didn't know that that's yeah, actually he does, pretty he cool does like, I think he does like like 10 of the versions like that were that are out there he does like the italian the french the spanish he might do the chinese great. version like well they, they probably just gave him some like phonetic thing to say three, yeah all, all you have to do is teach him three words so it's like uh, his was very easy to just get him to do but like it is funny like because you get his voice but like that's that's the one they always shows him going yo soy groot <laughs> that's great you br- you that's the tree god Groot. He's uh, yeah. the tree god that uh, Lexi keeps talking about. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> we got to kill God too. You just got to do yeah. it sometimes. I think yeah. going back to that that list that I gave you years ago, the top 3 animations that you should watch. Yeah, you, you'd include I think, this. I think you could throw this on that list. I think that this is a pretty important anime. Um I, I think it transcends anime, which I would put it on your list too because I think that I mean, what is the point? The point of the list of anime that sh- that if you you give that a shot, uh, it'll help you respect it. Like you'll you'll kind of see what it's capable of doing. Right. And I I don't think I can't think of like an American animation that is made for adults that goes as hard as this film does. You know what I mean? Like I can't think of one well, at all. Especially with with it being so steeped in tradition. Like this this whole movie is steeped in japanese tradition like 100 percent. the stories are the cultures all around it like the time period the, the execution of well the it's time like miyazaki fied like, too it's like yeah it, it's like made the feel like that folklore without actually stealing the folklore from anything right it's like his version of ev- of everything but this is a very traditional film like i mean like you could say watch this and like a story of the monkey god and you would get like a good idea of just like their religion and their culture combined together kind of thing. And- I think it's weird because I don't think it's as like traditional as you think it is, but just kind of like the way that Miyazaki was able to invent this stuff. So it's it, neo-traditional? Yeah, it, it feels like it definitely feels like it would be a folk tale told to kids or something. Right. Like he, I think that's, I think that shows you how talented the guy is, is that not only do you get that layered story, you get that tone that feels like, oh, this feels like a story that's been passed down generation to generation. So would you call him then the master of neo-traditional? Because everything he makes is... Maybe with animation, but I I don't know overall. Uh. 
That's fair. I think a lot of his stuff does have like a very traditional. He, he tends to focus on very traditional themes for a lot of his stuff. I mean, even like the whole element of like nature and how like even simple things like, you know, water. Water's the only thing that's going to be able to protect you from this curse getting you. Or right. these, the, the gelatinous, um, I don't even know what you want to call it. Whatever the fucking deer god becomes at the end. One thing that we've kind of noticed with his stuff is that there is this um this tendency of setting like the, the only thing he's made that's futuristic or set in any kind of like a future setting is nausicaa and nausicaa is one of those deals where we like fucked ourselves over and so we're kind of re-getting back to technology we don't have the technology that we have like now. So there's like carryover, but like, it's not, you know what I'm saying with that sort of like, I have $6 million man in my head. Like we have the technology, (laughs) (laughs) but he, he he does tend to set his movies like in the twenties, in the thirties, in like small villages that don't have a lot of connection to big cities. Uh, small areas that are not connected to like bigger things or older traditional time periods that require like less use of technology or less use of modern stuff. And I think that that's part of his like thing is to stick in like really old time periods because I think the old stuff gives his characters less um, reliance and forces them to go out and have like grander adventures by not having so much available to them. Like they have to go somewhere, they have to do this, they have to do that. There's so much more to that ability to do that if you set it in such a older time. The characters always have to go somewhere. They do have to go somewhere because it's always a journey, right? Every one of the movies, a journey of some sort. Uh, well, I guess. Like Porco Rosso feels like less of a journey. but I'd say I, it's probably... I'd say the majority the fits what you're, what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for me... Uh, watching all of his movies, this is one of the ones that, like I instantly loved and definitely saw that it was a top-tier Miyazaki film. And, and there are others that I do love that come after this and before this. Uh, but I would say even the ones that I don't care for are, are, like still have a lot of great elements to it. Porco Rosso, right. like, I had a great time talking to you guys about it. And there's a lot of stuff that I respect from it. But it, it was like one of the harder ones for me to be get in interested in what was going on in that story but then things like spirited I, away like i know you hate spirited away but i think spirited away is great i you, think it's pretty to look at i just think the story is weak i'm not big on the story on that one it's gorgeous to look at i think i think it's one of those films where you can validate dubbing because the animation gets so complicated and so elaborate in it that if you're reading subtitles, you're taking your eyes away from what's going on on the screen. And when there's that much shit moving around and that much going on, it's hard to like read and do that. I haven't had that really be a common issue. The first Spirited Away definitely did that. But like the first time that I've really watched something and I was like, I might have to watch this dubbed instead of subtitled where the new Neon Genesis Evangelion films, they just came out. And those have the best animation I've ever seen in my entire life period. Like, and I've never watched anything where so much of the background is animated as well as the foreground. And it becomes difficult to like focus when 
there's so much moving back there and it's beautifully done. And then the main characters are on the screen moving. And then there's like four of them on screen moving and interacting at the same time. And you're trying to read like piles of text because Neon Genesis, they never shut the fuck up. There's always like something going on. Uh, and so the Japanese it, language can fill up the bottom of the screen without yeah. having to say a, a lot. <laughs> So as the animation improves, the ability to read and take in what's on the screen becomes more difficult. And so that's why I'm learning I, Japanese. Yeah. Like, I want to be able to watch Seven Samurai and just not have to have subtitles on. I want to get to that. I know, wouldn't it? People are like, do you understand? Uh, I mean, if I watch enough times, maybe I'll just know what's going on at any given time. But uh, <laughs> my best friend from high school can do that right now. Uh, I can only pick up a few things. They're real simple phrases, but they'll say it. I'm like, oh, yeah. I mean, growing up watching anime, I have a bunch of stuff that I know and have picked up Some over the shit years. Doesn't translate but, yeah. right, though. It, I, no. it, I don't understand it. Like, uh, one, I know it's not Japanese. It's Swedish. But let the right one in. There was a lot of complaints about, oh, yeah. about the, the subtitled version that we got in the United States because they were like half-assed and like some of the shit that they were doing through like knocking through the wall and doing the SOS, they were making them say like different things in our subtitles. And it's like, come on. Like I, I get that there's a degree of, of uh, you know, you got to make it translate so it makes sense to people, but uh, it just sounded like they got a lazy translation and that, that kind of scares me. I've watched I've watched some like fan subs and stuff like that done for series that nobody would like release in this country back in the day. And I've taught myself over the years that like how to get the idea kind of thing. Like you'll see a subtitle that says he go fast and you're like, yeah, OK, that's not what was said. They just <laughs> said like five different things. But you're like, I don't really know. They, this they, is the they best rattle, translation. They rattle off like a paragraph and it says, yeah, run. <laughs> you're like, they didn't yeah. run. <laughs> and you're like, and then as you watch it, you, you're like, OK, well, I know that word and that word. I get so annoyed I'm like, when I'm watching subtitles uh, in English and the subtitles are like abbreviated of what they're saying. Yes. Yeah. That's really frustrating too. Or like when you watch enough of it that you've picked up enough things and then you see the subtitle and you're like, well, that's not really what they said, but we'll go with it kind of thing. So I'm at that point in my life where a lot of this stuff that I can watch poor, poor dub or poor subtitling because I'm able to just kind of get the idea. Yeah, and like then what like, I need some of the stuff I see too. I'm like, if Shin Godzilla could slap as much information on the bottom of their screen as they did, you can you can give me the full sentence that Brian Cranston just gave in the Godzilla movie. You know what I mean? Like, right. Exactly. Oh uh, yeah, it blows my mind. But Miyazaki, he's done. I want to say 13 movies. This is this is seven. So this kind of is interesting that this is where we end pretty early in his work we get about halfway through it and that's where we decided to stop there's a lot more to explore and he has another film of, uh, supposedly coming out so maybe next year the, the year after that we'll have another i mean in the united states it might be five years from now but i think that we took a really interesting approach to discussing him because traditionally people would talk about mononoke then they would go to spirited away and then they would probably go to like kiki or you know totoro because those are the all the big hot topic i mean like you know, studio brands. ghibli like, is totoro like that's they're simple yeah and he exactly. was in toy he was in toy story 3 you know like he gets but i think that into that world i think by going and discussing him in a non-traditional way 
and then because like we're ending on what would be the genesis of his greatness in a lot of ways like this is the film that really like changed everything for him like he had a bunch of shit but like up to this point like he didn't have anything like mononoke mononoke was like a a game changer not just as an animated film but like as a film as a whole you would say it's the culmination of everything that's come before it and i think like for us to end there i think it's an interesting point to watch his more traditional Japanese career up to this point, because we weren't watching shit from him in the eighties and nineties. We started a, a real America started our relationship with Miyazaki in 99, 2000, when we finally got access to princess Mononoke Mononoke changed the game of anime in America and made it readily available and made it mainstream. So he's responsible for making anime mainstream to Americans, his films and his traditional animation style. And it's funny because he's not typical anime either. Like he is, but he's more of a traditional Japanese art style than it is anime. Whereas if you want to get into anime, you want to get into shit like Akira and fucking like his process is expensive and right. You know, not everything that they put out is going to be a hit. You know, I mean, a a lot of anime in the over in Japan right now is is it's television. I think it's a sin to call him an anime guy. I think he is a filmmaker who utilizes animation as his medium and that he doesn't make traditional anime films. I think he's a traditional Japanese man. And so he takes his culture and he brings that into all of his films because all of his films have a traditional Japanese culture about them, but they do not have a I'm watching an anime quality. There is nothing about his films that have an anime quality to them until you get to like Spirited Away in my eyes. That's where you really cross over into that anime-ish kind of realm with his work. But he still takes all of his fantastical elements and incorporates them into it. His earlier works are so subtle. And they're so slice of life and they're so palatable and easy to get through. And I don't think that there's any country in the world where his films wouldn't work. You could sell these films in Europe. Europeans would love these. You could sell these films in anywhere in Asia. There's plenty in there they're going to adopt onto. You can sell this to Americans and they Maybe. liked it. They, they bid onto it. I know. I Well, it worked. We liked it. I mean, you started in the right place by giving them Mononoke in the theaters. And that's starting them out with the kids releases in this country. Because a lot of kids traditionally grew up with Kiki and Totoro because it was something that was in the kids section of the video stores and a lot of kids actually did see growing up in that time period. But like there wasn't a connection between Totoro and Mononoke until the 2000s. It wasn't until uh, like Miyazaki's like interviews. He is like hilariously cynical and everything that he said, like he just, I always see jokes about him being miserable, but he always does come off. Like he's the most miserable person ever. And they're like, you look at his work and it's like, bright and colorful and like full of life and you talk to him and he's like yeah the human race is all gonna die (laughs) just like where's this this guy and some of the things that i've i've seen is like when he goes to work he wears like an apron like he's like a yeah like like an old school like painter or something like that uh that's his work uniform 
I know from experience, if you ever want to go over to Japan and there's the Ghibli Museum, I fucked up. I didn't know this, but you got to buy tickets like a month in advance and they sell out in like a day. So you got to get like, I went in May and I would have had to buy tickets April 9th. And I did not understand that it was something that you had to buy in advance and that you couldn't just show uh, up and, sucks. and go to. So if you are actually interested in him and you want to go to the museum, I don't think it was like, super expensive, but it is extremely small. And one of the things I was interested in, but I don't even know if I would understand it, that's the only place in the world where you can see a lot of his short films. Now, if they would be translated for me, probably not. <laughs> you know, like I'd go there and watch them be like, that's pretty oh, yeah. cool. I don't know what was happening. I didn't understand anything. That's just like kind of like a heads up that I wanted to, to give because like it's not anything like, uh, I mean, you think of it like it would be Japan's Disney. And there are a lot of like Totoro stuffed animals and pop-up shops and stuff like that uh there was a huge one when i was there the one day massive i'm, I'm talking like this thing was 12 feet tall was ginormous and they love him that'd be kind of weird if you're just like oh no i think i'll go downtown and fuck that's a giant ass mickey mouse just i just think chilling there I think the biggest anime, I could be totally wrong with this, but I think it's in the top two for sure, is uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion. They have more merch and shit for that than anything else in that country. They have so much stuff for it. I have that to watch. Uh, I bought it like Chuck bought it. The best anime ever. Amazing. Um, But it is. It is. It started as a show, though. I know there's movies. So, so. It's a 26 episode and 24, 26 episode anime. And it's made by a guy who hates anime. He hates like with a passion, hates like modern anime and all this kind of stuff. So he made Neon Genesis Evangelion as a fuck you to the big robot genre. It's a non-traditional anime, but it was so popular and, and people loved it. And he was like upset and he was like, no, like... I did not anticipate like this level of success or whatever. So he ended it and his ending that he created was Well don't ruin it what, for me. I'm not I'm not gonna ruin it, but but the simple answer is that instead of giving people what they would want, he gave them an existential discussion and it just comes out of nowhere. Hey, I'm okay and with that. So, I liked Lost, you know, like I'm I'm fine with that type of shit. So when he released his finale for it, the fans were angry. They were like, this is fucking bullshit. And they were all like very American in their attitudes of how, how things went. So he went, all right, fuck you guys. Fuck you hard. And he went and he made the end of Evangelion, which literally is a film where he kills everyone. And it was an intentional like, okay, you, you didn't like my ending. You thought my ending was bullshit. Here you go. And he just created this like disgusting over the top like, slaughter everyone on purpose like it's a hundred percent like a fuck you to all of the fans of the series but they loved it because like every time he tries to say fuck you they loved more of what he did so this guy was broken by this essentially and didn't know what to do so he just like walked away from it and it's was the most successful anime like ever. And of course it's got a manga and the manga is a little different. He finally, they came back and talked with him and he was like, 
I would like to do what I actually wanted to do. I don't, I didn't really want to do what I did and it wasn't how I wanted it to go. This guy sounds like Alan Moore or something. Yeah. He's kind of, he's, he's annoying. So they said, okay, cool. We'll go ahead. We'll do it again. He's like, all right, I want to do like four movies that just kind of tell the whole story, like right through. They're like, that sounds fucking awesome. So he makes the first movie in like 2009. And here we are in 2022. And we just got the fourth one. I mean, hey, I really appreciate all that <laughs> background information on Hayao Miyazaki. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, but yeah. one day we could tackle something like that. Uh, but we'd probably I would have love to, to talk to them. We'd almost have to have like uh, if we ever did television, we'd have to break it down. Like we'll do like four or five episodes and break up a whole entire season. Well, or whatever. I, I was actually going to say it would i was gonna i mean i could say it on here but i was gonna say i would love to see us on here tackle those neon genesis movies because there's only four of them and they complete everything and they utilize some of the greatest animation i've ever seen and i just think it would be a really interesting conversation like you don't have to watch the original tv series to watch these movies you don't know you can watch these i do i mean i i would but I'm, i'm just saying like these movies are the TV series condensed down into four movies and then some additional content added in to end it how he actually wanted to. So like the first three films are basically the TV series. And then the fourth film is like the actual ending he wanted to like give us essentially. Uh, I do. I do have to burst your bubble. I am seeing that this film was mostly hand drawn, but it did incorporate some computer animation. Which one? uh, One. Ten, Modern, okay. Yes. Okay. Ten percent of the film was computer animated. That's not so. That, that's not surprising, especially with like Ghost in the Shell coming along. Because when Ghost in the Shell came out, it changed how Japanese engaged with animation, and they started doing a lot more of that. The type of animation that Ghost in the Shell does with I that always incorporating love, like, the CG stories that you know we're going to tell a, a difficult story through animation. So I think that's yeah. like the most disarming thing is that you think oh, it's just some shit for kids, or it's like it's just going to be overly gory with no point beyond that, and that's not usually what you run into. At least, at least no. with everything that we've been watching. Well, and I, I think sometimes just the story of how they get there with animation. I mean, film is fascinating. I always, that's one of my favorite things about film and like doing these podcasts is like when you start doing this and you start learning like the history of the film and how the film, like there were so many remakes that we spoke about. I was like, this movie's history was fascinating. I don't know how the movie was such a piece of shit, but like I would watch a movie about how the movie was made. And I think when you get into animation, like, so many people think that it's just drawing something and it's super easy, but like we had to find new techniques to truly get us to where we are today. And when you learn the history of those, like, like how many people really know that like Pixar wouldn't exist without George Lucas trying to come up with some sort of new animation system. And it's like, he sold that system to Pixar. I'm like, George Lucas is directly responsible for all modern CG in a lot of ways because he invested so much into it. It's like, uh, you forget Apple these had a things. lot to do with that too. With yeah. Pixar. He was working with them because he was working with them at the time. Well, he, he, he was working with someone who created a weird system and then they started working with Apple, I think as well. It's a weird story. It's an interesting story when you really get into like where Pixar got their machines and were able to start working on CG. Uh, I'm reading some fascinating stuff while you're talking, too, uh, about our movie. 
And uh, one of them was that when they were doing the dubs, I guess Harvey Weinstein wanted to like edit it down. So Miyazaki's producer sent him a samurai sword with the message, no cuts. <laughs> That's great. I wouldn't do that even I'm not if I'm not doing a Japanese movie. Just right. send them a sword that says no cuts. That's amazing. It's a threat. It's a light threat. It's <laughs> also, they also got threat. a sword out of it. It's kind of cool. He's yeah, supposed to be enjoying shit. that in jail. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> he probably is. Uh, yeah, and actually, now that I'm thinking about it, too, it's funny that we do this movie, and it, this movie is now 25 years old. Uh, and that's it, crazy it really doesn't it it has it does have a very timeless feel to the animation uh, as opposed to like nausicaa where nausicaa felt pretty limited but it didn't really hurt doesn't hurt the story for me in that one see i don't i don't think there's a huge separate like there are some areas i'm not gonna like be ignorant but i don't see a huge separation between the artistry that came from nausicaa the artistry that came from porco rosso and this movie I think every one of his films carries a very similar art style right through. And I think it's impressive that even though he utilizes newer techniques and some of his stuff, that he's so able for so long to maintain such a style. And like the Nausicaa, I'd, I've said there were like a few spots and like some face stretches and things like that on some of the characters. Like you could see like it was Cell and they just rushed that part right there. For a traditional 1982 cell shaded Japanese film, meaning it doesn't have the money or the budget that any modern American film would have had at that time. That movie's mind blowing with its artwork. And then to think that, like I said, in 87, 88, you get Akira, like these people were fucking pushing the boundaries of what you could do with animation. There is nobody on the planet who does better animation than the Japanese. It also Hands down. like blows my mind too that the uh, Japanese Academy Awards that this was their best picture of the year. Like this this movie right here. And that right. animation does it just keeps slipping in in there every so often. Uh, because they just treat it as a medium. They don't look at it the way that we do. It is just a medium for storytelling. So they don't look at an animated film and go, oh, it's animated, but it was so good. It's like, this movie was excellent because it's just part of their existence and tradition. I mean, they have adult animated series that are not like fucking The Simpsons. Like they have like cop shows and dramas and like soap operas and everything done in animated styles. It's just part of their existence. And I wish that this country could adopt it the same way and stop trying to make like every time we do something adult, it's a fucking sitcom. And I'm like, I don't want another sitcom. Yeah, you do. I want you to give me, why don't you give me like a crime, like drama crime. That's animated crime. Well, like I would like, I mean, you love cop shows in this country so much. There's no reason that you couldn't give me a really solid cop drama. You do get it when you, Oh, animated. Yeah. When you, like, you, there's no reason that you couldn't do a really good, like, buddy cop series that's animated. There's no reason that you couldn't do, like, all kinds of, like, different stories and elements. You want to do an anthology horror series that's animated? Go right ahead. Like, I mean, we're watching Love, Death, and Robots. Love, Death, and Robots is anthology science fiction. They don't seem to mind doing, like, computer animation all of a sudden when we talk about, like, CG, like, science fiction. And I'm just like... I'm tired of that shit too. That every time it's fucking science fiction in America, we got to do it in CG. And I'm like, there's no reason that every time we talk about like an animated thing and we make it science fiction, that we have to do it out of CG. Like you can do traditional animation styles and make it CG. Heavy metal taught us that years ago. 
Like, I don't understand, like, our thought process and animation in this country <laughs> at all. It's so, and even, like, you think we're making progress right now, and we're still ass backwards compared to the rest of the world. When you look at France, when you look at Japan, like, where are we in comparison to them and their idea of what animation is and where it should be in the lexicon? Well, then it's also kind of weird because from their perspective, we're like the powerhouse of cinema. So like right. Disney and Pixar and stuff is like the the prestige that and you got to figure out like ways to keep it. Interesting. And they're and they're mimicking French animation because Pixar is 100 percent constantly mimicking French animation. Everything they make in some form is like traditional European animation in some way or another. They don't even borrow from anime. They borrow like entirely from like French animation. That is entirely their basis. I mean, I, I agree with you, but also I feel like everybody is just always borrowing. You know, it, it's I can't think of anything that you can't dive into something where you're like, it's it, it took this from that and that from this. I think the most traditional American animation comes from Warner Brothers and Disney. Hands down, they are the two most traditional. And I think if you want to get the best quality American animation, like when you're thinking of American American animation, I think Warner Brothers is better than Disney because Disney borrows from so many different elements. They borrow from all those European elements or paintings or things like that. And that's fine, but they're still borrowing elements. Whereas like Warner Brothers is its own unique 100% American animation. And that style, that traditional Warner Brothers like style has carried through all American animation right up to this day, especially when you get into the 90s. The 90s is like almost entirely adopting Warner Brothers style in some form or another, even if it's not a Warner Brothers company doing it. It's that traditional style that all carries over. I mean, I feel like I went off track. <laughs> uh, I'm here to keep us on track. So it's only one. Two, he's won two best pictures. He's won it for this movie. He's won it for Spirited Away. Yeah. Which I don't even I'd have to look up American ones. Like I know things have been nominated like Beauty and the Beast, but I, I don't think we've had a best picture that's been an animated film ever. No, no, we've never had a best picture that was animated. Um and Disney traditionally only wins for their music, never for their animation. Or they'll win uh Pixar has been pretty good at usually winning best animated. Pixar will win animation for sure, but like Disney's animated films don't typically win. It's like the musical win more than anything. It's it bold. does happen. I'm not saying it, but it is like strange, like how they have such a tradition of what? being at the academies without, you know, well, I really think having like too Beauty many and the Beast, for example. Yeah, that one. Like, uh, it was up for it was like of the five movies for Best Picture. I think it was nominated and you don't really see that too often. Beauty and the Beast, even if you're not a fan of the individual film itself, I mean, from an animation standpoint, that was like Disney pushing like so many boundaries. So, so like you're right. It won for score and it won for song, but it was actually nominated for Best Picture and it didn't win that. Yeah. Which kind of blows my mind that um, it even had that nomination. And that was one of the first Disney films to incorporate CG into it. Right, like it was up, Beauty and the Beast was up against Silence of the Lambs. It lost to the Silence of the Lambs. Reasonable. I mean, that movie's a fucking masterpiece. It's just funny, though, that it was it was up there with it. It didn't... Yeah. Didn't fucking win, but... And they're, like, they're the only company in this day and age 
who could possibly walk away with an Academy Award winning an animation. They're the only ones, especially where they own everything, because now they own Fox, which Fox would be the only other company that I would think could do it, because Warner Brothers is never going to win anything for animation. Even though their animation's better, they're just not. Like, they just don't make anything to, like, stand out like that. And, like, DreamWorks at one point in time was competitive with Disney, but they, like, quickly fell off. And so you're in this position right now where there's not a lot of like studios that are producing high end animation that you could look at as competitive in the Academy Award winning world. So I guess Disney is either going to have to walk away with something. But if once again, Disney's decided to do that style that I complained about last time where they're just like they have a fucking bin of character models and they just take the character models and all they do is change the skin tone, slap some different eye color on it, and call it a fucking day. And so they're not going to win anything from that. They're just going to keep winning for scores like Encanto because Encanto is never going to walk away with it, like a, a story or best, you know, film award. But the music was and you knew that going into it. Yeah, I mean, I think the closest thing that I can think of is uh, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse where like I was like really excited and I was like, I that was definitely a shock. think it will win be- uh, best animated. And it would be nice, too, if it had any sort of competition with and actual like, live live action films. That was a first in so many ways. Like, it was a first for superhero movies. That was a first for, like, Sony. Sony. made a good Spider-Man movie. Like, Reverse so- Simon Weil. Like, but, but Sony Animation even getting acknowledgement to that degree. I mean, Sony animation is such a small division They They don't really put out too much. There's a trailer that I just saw and they're like, and somebody's like, so it's just stealing the animation from, from into the spider verse. Uh, Probably. I can't remember what the movie was, but it's, uh, something that's coming out. I think this year, Chuck, what do you got to say about all this? <laughs> a better yet, Chuck, how far are you through your Miyazaki journey? I only watched up to Mononoke. So you got it. So out of all of the seven so far, what, where are you kind of, what are you feeling towards all of them? I mean, they're, they're all good. I'd say Mononoke is probably, it's probably up there. Like I'd say, I'd say my top three at up to that point is probably Castle in the Sky, Kiki and Princess Mononoke. I don't know in what order, but that's like the top, the top three would be those ones. I've got to watch Castle in the Sky. And uh, it, it has like a, it. It, is, it is really cool. It really is. Uh, I am interested. Well, because you're only halfway through that journey. So do you think you're mm. going to in by the time we move into our next? Do you think we can get a quick update of like uh, where you think you're going to get through well, all I'm gonna of them? Try. I'm going to try. Or at least get, <laughs> get through some more. You're more than we'll halfway see. through. This is the halfway point. We'll see. We'll try to make it. Yeah, I'm interested to see where you're at because I I know where I f- I know where I feel about most of them, and everything that you mentioned I thought were were great movies. The weirdest one that I was like I don't know if I like this, but I feel like I'm loving it, and then I'm like unsure, like I kept wavering a lot. Was Ponyo? I need to watch that one. It's such a weird movie. It's like it kind of has that a- anime character that you don't love so much, but the animation style and like the love for the animations, like kind of like outweighs that, that personality and the wind rises, I think is great. It, the wind rises takes away most of the fantasy element. It's like basically shot as if it were a real movie. Gotcha. I just love his fascination with airplanes. I can't remember. I thought his dad or something was in the air force, but uh, that's it. So you have six more to watch then. Yeah, 
Yeah, probably, yeah. Okay. Seven if you count that one that didn't come out yet. And maybe by the time I'm That's done, fair. it will. Maybe it'll take I was gonna. Long. I was going to ask you what you think the future for him is, but Death. he retired and then came back and is doing one more. So I think he's probably done after this. I don't think he's going to try to pull another one out. Or if he does, he'll die in the middle of it. Uh, I'm twisting the story, I'm sure, but I feel like his inspiration came from like a grandchild or something like that. I could see that. So I think that's like why he like he's been playing around with it and he he never fully left. That sounds about right. They all say they're going to retire and then like get bored and go back to it in some way. Yeah, I think like I think of, although you get sometimes you get it and it's just disappointing. Like you really do want more from them, but you just got to be happy with what you got. And then you got some of the some creative types where they can't let it go. They have to they, they have to constantly be doing it or they don't have any sort of uh, passion. Yeah, right now he's 81 years old. So, you know, he could yeah. be around for another 20 years even. People be living into their hundreds. It's crazy. I, I deliver flowers to people who are having their like 100th and 101st birthdays constantly. And I'm like, every time I deliver, I'm like, that's so impressive. And then like by the 20th, I'm like, god damn you people are just not dying like it's crazy so well, i mean anything can fun. anything can happen but yeah we'll see what comes out of his work we'll follow right. it i guess if we hear anything we'll definitely update it on our podcast yeah he's definitely a legend he's gonna go down in history long after his death people will be watching these movies yeah. these are gonna be traditional films for people so his dad was a manufacturer for rudders for uh fighter planes during world war ii which ties gotcha. into the wind rises, yeah. It's and it's and it's actually kind of weird because it is his like it's kind of his war film, I guess. And you know, war is a big subject of all of his movies. I mean, this movie was about war. Uh, Nausicaa, Nausicaa had all kinds of war themes. War is like something that he has humans consistently engaging in in the background in some way of his movies at all times. Uh, yeah, and and even this, it, it's it's definitely not the manufacturing is the foreground, but the war aspect of it, it's like oh that beautiful plane that I made. Yeah, but I'm in, yeah I'm interested to hear what Chuck's opinions are since this is his first time, you know, going through it. What were your expectations going in, and how did it play out? I mean, I expected them to be good. <laughs> I had I had, there there's high expectations when it's like. His name is the one that's brought up most often in reference to those kind of high quality. I feel like his are the movies that even people that don't really, that wouldn't even say they're anime fans, like they've heard of these movies or seen these films. Like he's that that prevalent or that uh, that well like pushed in America, especially obviously with the connection to Disney. Like Disney's not just going to randomly like drop that stuff. They're just they're going to like try to make a big deal about getting people to see this right i mean it's wild because like i i even have a book from film school that was i don't know maybe like 13 it 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 broke down like 13 different movies and i i think you had things like the godfather on there but it also had spirited away <laughs> and i just thought that that was interesting that that was included in in like the select films that they decided to to crack open I think Spirited Away gets too much acknowledgement. I think this is stronger film than Spirited Away, for sure. It, it's it's such a different film, though. I I I am interested to see how. Did you see that? You saw that one before, though, didn't you, Chuck? Which one? Spirited Away. No, I haven't seen Spirited Away either. 
have you seen any of the movies that that are like up, upcoming for you? Like Howl's Moving Castle no, or anything? No, any of the ones oh. that I'd seen were like the first few. Uh, I think I like Howl's like a lot. The, Howl's the, is really good. So that's where me and Lexi are different, I guess. When I first watched, uh, I saw Spirited Away and I saw Howl's Moving Castle. And the first time that I watched them, I was like, eh, for both of them. Uh, and then I watched them again when I did this marathon, which I think everything was fresh. And those were the only two rewatches. And I really like Spirited Away the second time I watched it. And Howl's Moving Castle was another one that I was like, eh. I wanted to like it more than I liked it. I really like I really like Howl. I think that one's really good. I think Howl is a good character. Like, he's a really good um, protagonist. He's such an asshole. He's such an asshole. <laughs> but it's good. Like His castle a good does redemp- move. It does. He has a good redemption arc. I like his, his arc as a character. I mean, I'm not up. Uh, I'm up for revisiting it again at some point. But it was one that I was just like, when I watched Spirit Away, I'm like, oh, I'm going to like Howl's Moving Castle more than I did the first time. And then I was like, eh, not, that's not even usually how I want to feel. Right. But we'll see. Hey, anyways, like I I just seen Jurassic World 3. So watching Gross. Princess Monoki after that was like, oh, hmm. so much nice. Like there was substance and uh, oh, my I'm God. Not, I can't even care about that. So. I think More sometimes too, to you. your your the way you feel depends on what you've come off, like how you're feeling that day. So, like if you watch, if you're watching a really complex thing, sometimes you're like, you know what, something dumb would be really nice right now. And then the opposite, yeah. you watch too many dumb things, and you're like, I need to watch a very complex film. I need to uh, think for a little bit. But uh, yeah, I mean, we've covered some animation, but this is probably the most animation that we've covered in a long while. Uh, I mean, th- I think this is our first animated theme. I don't think that we've done an animated theme before. And we are probably not still not going to do animation for like another couple months. Well, yeah, in the next for the rest of this year, we're not going to cover any more animation. Unless maybe we, we do like got. a Christmas special and we pick an animated Christmas movie or something. I mean, I'm always scared to talk about Santa Claus versus the snowman. Is it animated? It's CG. Really right, bad CG. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> uh, we cover we covered it on my podcast. So we are taking a week off, like we do, and then we're moving into our next director. We're going to be doing directors for the rest of the year. All everybody has been decided. We know who the directors are, and uh, I'll let Chuck talk about his director. You don't have to give away your the picks if you don't want to. But what what are we getting into next month? Uh, next month, we're we're changing it up. We're not talking about films. We're talking so about these, joints. We're talking about joints. <laughs> I like, knew where you were not going films. with that. Yeah, because <laughs> uh, I because I believe I, I believe I, unless I'm mistaken, I believe the only Spike Lee film is Inside Man. That is, that is the only Spike Lee film. The rest of them are joints. We're not talking think, about films. Is it really? I still feel like it has joints. No, I'm gonna throw it in just to see if it if it says it. Yeah, you I think go, he drops it. Doesn't he drop it at like that the sweet blood of Jesus? No, because it's like, still on. Uh, it's still on uh, the five bloods. Like he still uses it. I don't wow. know why Inside Man was like the only one that he that he changed it on for some reason. I don't know if it was because that movie that movie was kind of like marketed more as being like a 
Like it wasn't specifically marketed as like as the new Spike Lee joint. Like it was marketed as here's a great film. It happens to be directed by Spike Lee and we're not making that big of a deal about it. Like it was that's probably his most like overtly like popular film like that wasn't wasn't specifically like a lot of his uh his like necessary like strong ideas that he puts into a lot of his other films. Like I think it's a good it's definitely a good film, but it didn't have it, it feels like definitely one that somebody else came up with the idea and then he signed I, on to direct because it was a good script like not i didn't know that was his at all honestly yeah it's it's because it doesn't like it is a really good film but it doesn't specifically have like his style to it it definitely feels more like a he was hired on to to work on that film not specifically like that he came up with an idea or worked with somebody on it but it's it's a good film but uh yeah it's i think that's the only one that that's credited that way everything else uh I believe is credited as a Spike Lee joint, but yeah, he's, I, I've, I've always enjoyed all of his movies. There's some, there, his commercials all, are great. Yeah. He's, he's just got, he's got a really good, like artistic vision. That's very unique. He has that very specific worldview that it feels like a lot of his films, other than again, as I've said, inside man, that's one of the few that doesn't specifically feel like his, like he has a very, a very specific style that he works in. That's, I mean, his worst movie that I think I've seen is his old boy remake. That was really bad. I didn't even see that one. And I that was shockingly bad. I was like, yeah, I don't think I want to see that one. (laughs) Uh, I think you need to, even though it's definitely Uh, not anything that we picked. (laughs) It was like it was like, I can't believe they're even remaking old boy in America. Like that first right off the bat, because that's part of a trilogy. So I don't know why you'd bother. And then. Yeah, like, well, we're going to get Spike Lee to do it. And well, like, I mean, at least the trilogy is who's a spiritual. It's a spiritual trilogy, so it doesn't really, like... That's it fair, is but it's still, like, why would you bring this to this country? Why would you remake this? Who the fuck would go get Spike Lee to remake this? You do realize who made the original. Like, like don't I think it's Spike Lee time. that wanted to do it. I, I just don't understand I, why it ended up being I, as terrible as it, it was. It, it was so bad. So, yeah, I, I didn't expect that from him. But up to that point, you're not wrong. His films are fairly grounded in reality as well. He's not someone who typically goes out and does like supernatural shit or. No, but he does have a, he does have some interesting styles that are not natural. Uh, definitely. But it's definitely like the language of film. So I'm interested in talking about a yeah. lot of that and see how his much style, carry o- carries over and i think a lot of it carry overs into all three of the movies that we picked yeah he has such an interesting evolution in style too where he starts out almost like traditional black comedy and then like finds his place as like almost like a spokesperson for his people in his films and it's like really interesting to watch that progression i i should have picked crooklyn i was gonna pick that as my movie and i just i backed off at the last second i mean there's a time to change it if you wanted to we're not gonna no no i I think i'm good with what i picked but that movie's great like that's one of his like really good comedies so it's like the guy's got a really broad range i'm excited you picked him he's like really one of my top five favorite directors like easily one of my most influential thank you chuck for your your pick that's what i'm here for We'll see how it goes after we've talked about his movies. <laughs> Again, yeah. just three movies, just a little taste. Each of us picking a movie that we want to discuss. Uh, pretty sure I'm up first because I'm doing one of his early yeah. ones. And then we'll see where we go from there. 
Yeah, I think mine's the last one because of like the 2000s. Unless you change it. Nah, I'm good. I'll stick with what I got. All right. Well, it's an unusual film for him. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think that we'll, we have a pretty good discussion with it. Actually, the next couple of directors that we have, uh, there's some diversity there with the types of films. But yeah, I guess that's a, that's what we're going to put under the microscope every single time. I, I like talking about the movie itself and seeing how we, you know, how the director evolves over time. I like to be able to see what I can get out of the film without knowing too much of, you know, like background of, of who this character is. Characters and like this, the, the, the person themselves. I who think... is Spike Lee and who, what do his films tell us about him? I think that our director in August is the most modern director we're covering this year entirely. Probably. Because, like, well, we the, seem to have gone our next back ones to, like, are like the traditionals. Well, yeah, we have a modern. We have, well, somebody's pick in November's a pretty modern director still. I mean, well, I mean, Spike Lee, we're not picking his most modern films, but he's still a modern filmmaker. I mean, one I mean, of our filmmakers is dead that we're going to be covering, which is basically That's... how we started this year. We picked four directors and half of them were dead. That's so funny. Half of them are. And actually, uh, one was a set of directors. So more have been alive than have than have than are dead. <laughs> I don't know if you know how math works, but that's five people. So, you know, it's a, an odd number and there's a tipping point and it's tipping towards being alive <laughs> but we'll be here two weeks from now tune in subscribe tell your mom about our podcast send us some love bye my mom's been listening bye sayonara <laughs> well i, I should have had some japanese right yeah. konnichiwa uh, uh wrong time desu <laughs> <laughs> Nani. This episode was super kawaii. And kawaii. We are Cinema de More. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter to stay up to date with news and information on upcoming episodes. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, Pandora, Alexa, or iHeartRadio. It would be greatly appreciated if you subscribe to our podcast on your platform of choice. We also appreciate feedback, so rate us, review us, and let us know what you think. And above all else, thank you for listening.